Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacklesom. Chris, how are you doing today? Well, I'm I am good, David. I I'm still on the road. I'm I'm up in Seattle. We have uh, a Seattle sort of influenced theme for the show, uh, but it, it is a complex uh, personal adventure that I've been on with family visits and all sorts of other things. But it's certainly been an interesting cultural. Uh, discovery safari uh i think seattle is a it's been an interesting city for some time but i think it's it has a lot of of uh significance for the american zeitgeist right now so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's the mode i'm in excellent well for anybody listening at home you might notice that my recording sounds a bit different today that's because chris and i are recording during the day and My son is currently napping, but he could wake up at any time and more than likely will. So I'm recording on my field recorder, which is uh, should sound crisp and nice. But you will also hear everything else that I do, such as, oh, look at this. I just brushed up against a plastic bag. You're probably hearing that. (laughs) But on that note, uh, Chris, what did you want to talk about today? Okay. Well, just a reminder to listeners that that the ongoing experiment with David's mind continues. Uh, He has been given a choice of five words to pick two to uh, somehow manage to use those uh, as surreptitiously or naturally as possible. Isn't that an interesting contradiction, you know, connection there? Surreptitious and natural interesting i just that just occurred uh but the idea for listeners is of course to try to pick out which of those two words to keep us posted at the butterfly in your mouth at gmail.com and we are keeping track of people who are guessing correctly and we'll have quarterly prizes uh i think the first awards will be somewhere in october so have a listen to that but i thought we would uh look at um, a theme that that uh, sort of connects several dots. Uh, it's a Seattle-based story to some extent. It's a pop culture mythology celebrity story. And I'd like to suggest it's also uh, a kind of uh, mystery story, too. Uh, it certainly has some, uh, well, urban legend, uh, pop culture mythology, conspiracy theory, angles to it. And I guess the way to introduce it is uh, the Bruce Lee story, which also connects to uh, the tragic death of of his son, Brandon Lee. Um, What do you think about that as a starting point? And we can kind of explain how we got to talking about that. I think that's a great idea. I have been fascinated by the Bruce Lee slash Brandon Lee story for quite some time, uh, particularly because when I was growing up, there was a film that came out called Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yes, I remember. It ad- advertised in every comic book that I bought at the time. And uh, it was around the time, as a matter of fact, that Brandon Lee uh, accidentally got shot on the set of The Crow. So it looms large in my childhood mythology. Um, so I have some interesting things to to say about Brandon in particular, but some things about Bruce as well. But um, yeah, take I mean, you're up there in in Seattle. Uh, what's what's the story up there as far as Bruce Lee action goes? 
Okay, well, I am glad that you've kind of got the Brandon side of this covered because that's a little bit less clear to me. I, that's not as an iconic a uh, sort of part of my memory field as, as Bruce Lee. Uh, I, I did pay a visit to uh, the Bruce Lee grave, which is quite a beautiful thing. Uh, it's in generally in the Capitol Hill uh, area. It's a central part of, of Seattle, which, as most people would know, sort of runs north south rather than east west because of the waterway uh there it made me think though of uh walking along the hong kong foreshore which if people haven't been there they can imagine that it's pretty intense from hong kong island looking out over kowloon and there is a bronze statue of bruce lee there as a a commemoration of his uh, great contribution to Hong Kong action films and breaking that open to a world market. It was obviously very a huge genre uh, in within Asia, but um, he really made that happen as an international superstar. And it, I couldn't when I looked at that statue the first time. Um. It made me think of the bronze statue of Stevie Ray Vaughan in Austin. And there's a peculiar kind of uh, hyper-realism to these uh, statues. It's a little bit disturbing. I find bronze work oftentimes a little bit, a bit too mannequin-y, you know? And it's, so there's this quality of of both a larger-than-life and yet also kind of, not corporately owned, but socially owned uh, by a community or by a culture, lowercase c. And we also, I think, don't have that many people merging to that level of sort of mythic superstardom, you know, a kind of archetypal Mm -hmm. figure that could get that kind of treatment. So that was just, that's always in the back of my mind when I think of of Bruce Lee. he has a huge uh, history here in Seattle. He went to the University of Washington, uh, where I did my grad work. He was part of a very important Chinese-American moment in the community at the time. And Seattle has a tremendously rich history in that. The International District, which is uh, nominally really Chinatown, has had a long history of incredible uh, excitement, adventure, uh, you know, bootlegged uh, alcohol, speakeasies, uh, illegal gambling clubs, murders. Uh, when I was teaching, there was a massacre called the Wami Massacre, two guys who are still imprisoned uh, all these years later in uh, Walla Walla, Washington, the state, the infamous state prison known as the Walls. Um, so there's a huge mythos that that Bruce Lee did tap into, both knowingly and I think uh, very naturally. Uh, I wouldn't say accidentally, but he certainly did touch on a few of those absolutely essential chords. And it was important, I think, that he had the joint citizenship and also that dual spiritual citizenship of Hong Kong and a Pacific Rim American city. 
So I, I thought I would throw that to you at the start, that my, my question, he was a, a childhood hero of mine in a kind of, um, not that I tried to emulate him or, or got involved in, in martial arts uh, necessarily, but he was one of those really cool figures um, that broke open a whole world. I, I think he couldn't be mentioned in the same breath as Bob Marley in a different mm. field, you know? And mm-hmm. one of my questions is, why did he strike those chords? Because I think it's mm-hmm. more than just being an action star, much more than that. Uh, and also, what happened to that star energy? Did it develop? I mean, some people I know say, well, we have, you know, Jackie Chan would follow and Jet Lee, and there are others. I, I don't buy that, frankly. I don't see, I see them, you know, I, there's a relationship, of course, but I don't see them having that sense of, of owning a mythic place in world culture the way that Bruce Lee does. So I thought I'd throw that open to you. My first question has to be, you know, you mentioned Bob Marley, another, you know, superstar who died young. We have Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin. Do you think the fact that he died at 32 has something to do with that? Or was he bigger in your estimation while he was alive than someone like Jackie Chan or Jet Li? Very good question. Okay. I I think absolutely he was bigger from the moment that people started to really hear about him. A couple of the the initial films were, I don't know, pretty, uh, you know, not silly, but, but certainly not great you know, mm-hmm. world art. They were, you know, popular Hong Kong action martial arts movies. Uh, and nothing like the sublime intensity of Enter the Dragon, which, yeah. you know, I mean, and it's not just the production values that make that so good. I mean, everything about that is, I think, absolutely iconic and remains so to this day. Uh, so I think he was absolutely bigger. Uh, the, the Green Hornet thing was huge. It built mm-hmm. on um, the the popularity of the Batman series with Adam West and uh, Burt Ward. But the Green Hornet was much more realistic and much cooler, I thought, um, and drew on a more interesting comic series. I, I, I really liked the, uh, the Green Hornet idea. And uh, mm-hmm. I believe the Green Hornet's mass, it's something about, there's a relationship between the Green Hornet and the Lone Ranger. Maybe one of mm-hmm. our listeners yeah. can sort of find out about that. But certainly the early death, certainly the mysterious, I mean, here was someone who was this sublime, uh, intense, disciplined athlete, you know, of, of, you know, just amazing ability we kind of expect someone like that to uh, to live forever um, or right. to die maybe in a helicopter crash like Stevie Ray Vaughan or something that that would be a, li- a little bit more sense of closure. Of, of all the people that you mention, these great uh, tragic celebrities, and it's interesting that two of them are also Seattle-based, Jimi Hendrix mm-hmm. and Kurt Cobain. Um I think there's something in, in, in what we're going to get to that has to do with Seattle because um, mm. each of those figures sort of represents a different aspect and a different period of Seattle being hip or uh, emergent as a, as a city of cool. Uh, mm. But I think mm. that, that 
it isn't just the early death. There, I mean, I got the feeling watching Bruce Lee early in the piece that he, that I'd already known him, you know, that I knew mm -hmm. the mythology, that he tapped mm -hmm. into something that, you know, that, what's that expression? If, uh, is that Gus? Oh, no, that was my door. Yeah, oh, okay. sorry. <laughs> I thought, well, what's oh, he God, doing to that? Was... What's he doing to that baby? I know if it was that high pitch, you have to call CPS. Yeah, um, something. Um, so, go, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, yeah. so my question, I guess my my response to your question is a question back that mm -hmm. uh, or general query that somehow he emerged into world entertainment culture mm -hmm. and also, uh, of course, martial arts and, and uh, you know, the philosophy that went with that as if there had been a whole tradition behind him. And I think that is the link back to, uh, to Bob Marley, that Bob Marley was not just kind of an isolated individual. Right. I think there are real different, I mean, Marley was really just a second rate studio, uh, you know, session musician for studio one in, in Kingston. And then he mm -hmm. went off to London and, and reinvented himself. He had the big dream. And Bruce Lee also had that. He, you know, he he founded a different kind of martial art and a different studio and started getting uh well, people like John Saxon and I think Tom Loft and some of these celebrities who actors who wanted to study martial arts. There were so, there were quite a few of them. So he was a teacher first, and he was a teacher very young, you know, kind mm -hmm. of a guru in that sense, a, a martial arts. Uh, you know, sensei sort of master figure. Um, mm -hmm. But I think the early death and, and the, that lack of closure surrounding it, um, it, is, it is very important. I mean, it's kind of like when we were talking about Malaysian Flight 370. If the plane had been found, really, and we definitively knew where it crashed, uh, well, the mystery would be solved, you know? Yeah, right, right. Well, then two things come to mind. Number one is I wonder I wonder how many big Chinese stars there were at this time. I know that martial arts film existed before Bruce Lee, but I wonder about this kind of crossover appeal. So actually, I guess there are three things. The, the second thing is that I wonder if there is a reservoir of um, celebrity charisma that has been stretched too thin, uh, has been sort of dried up by, you know, everybody getting, literally getting their Warholian uh, 15 minutes of fame. I think when it was perhaps a more precious resource, it could maybe be distilled into these figures. The third thing is a little bit spookier, but, you know, Bruce Lee had an older sibling who passed away uh, before, I think before he was even born. And his parents referred to him as uh, Little Phoenix, which is a girl's name, which is a Chinese practice where you confuse angry ghosts by uh, referring to the baby as the opposite gender so as to, you know, keep them from taking the baby away. Um, there goes my door again. Um, so the third and spooky option is that I wonder if there isn't a kind of, like, uh, a doomed energy right? Like a doomed energy to some celebrities, whether that's, uh, you know, again, Jimi Hendrix or Kurt Cobain or whatever. If there isn't a, 
kind of spiritual sixth sense that you can have about these types of people that makes them shine that much brighter because we kind of know we kind of have this message from the future that their time is is limited right i mean i think that um when you think about a lot of a lot of celebrities end up passing away in at least older age if not old age because they're rich you know they have access to great health care um you know barring some kind of drug accident like river phoenix or you know or the aforementioned you know like Jimi hendrix or janice joplin right um if they make it past a certain phase of superstardom it seems that they uh they tend to make it but there's a kind of quality to the the kind of the doomed good-looking hyper talented hyper charismatic star that that might suggest a kind of foreknowledge of the tragedy that that might follow um and that's maybe the more no country answer. I I certainly get that. I mean, I think that ties in with uh, you know the ancient Greek worship of youth. You know, a poem like "To an Athlete Dying Young," uh, war. You know, the death of 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 you know young people, um, mm-hmm. violence, uh, and you know that sort of Vegas expression of of you know live hard, die young, and and leave a good looking corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked that that idea of of the charisma reservoir uh, mm-hmm. that is running dry. Um, I mean, I uh, as people might know, I, I live in Las Vegas normally, and, and we're looking at Lake Mead being lower than it's ever been before, and it's a very concrete. I mean, there's no metaphor there. It it, it this is yeah. fact, and we've talked uh, at various times in the show, but we picked up certainly in uh, the part two episodes behind the paywall, the idea of kind of a Jungian collective unconscious exhaustion of, of not being able to replenish the mythological world and, and to fire up new archetypes, kind of original patents for celebrities and these sort of godlike individuals. And I, I do think, I think it's an interesting proposition that you put forward that I think is worth teasing out a little bit further, that the, the Warholian sort of 15 minutes of fame, which is now 15 seconds on TikTok. Um, Correct, yes. Mm-hmm. That we've, we've just, I mean, I think Warhol would be amazed at how that idea has been just incredibly amplified even further than he ever mm-hmm. you know, put forward. If that hasn't changed the capacity for uh, the longevity, the uh, the substance, the the length of shadow, uh, even a luminous shadow of these figures, and I also thought of um, a comment you made when we were talking uh, very focusedly about the celebrity cult, particularly in America, and. Uh, we looked at the example of Shirley Temple, who was sort of really the archetypal child star. There were a couple, but she's you know was probably the biggest of the 20th century. And you remarked that today, you know, a company like Walt Disney is trying to create the next Shirley Temple week to week, and they're mm-hmm. throwing these figures up on the screen like mud on a wall, and 
maybe the speed of that, maybe the relentlessness of it. And I want to throw in maybe the intentionality, the intentionality mm-hmm. of that, I think is a really crucial idea. I've just thought of that, that there is now sort of working to a formula, whereas we're talking about with people, you know, like Shirley Temple or Jimi Hendrix or Bruce Lee, certainly Bruce Lee, somebody who invented a formula, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that we are starved for people who can do something original. Back when Bruce Lee became famous, being on television or being in a film was a a huge monumental achievement that not everybody got to do. I think once you have digital film, uh, I think what that does is that puts the power in everybody's hands to make a movie. There was a film that came out about seven or eight years ago called Tangerine, and it was shot on an iPhone. Right, All they had I to do that. was have the, the proper sound equipment because, you know, sound is huge in movies. Um, and they were able to go out and make a movie. And, you know, YouTube, the, the numbers for how many lifetimes you would have to live to watch all of the content on YouTube that gets uploaded even in a day is just insane. If you think about that in terms of there being something special about being recorded and being, you know, kind of uh, in a in a film, a film that, by the way, is shot on film, 35 millimeter film. It's burned into this celluloid, basically. Um, the whole process was much more, I think, alchemical and interesting than the bits and bites that we deal with today uh, with the, you know, everybody being able to just click on their phone. I mean, I did it today. I took about five videos of my son trying to roll over and all I had to do was hit a button. So I think that there was, there's a ritualistic aspect to the film itself that made these icons. And of course there were people in films that didn't achieve the levels that Bruce Lee did. Cause there have always been bombs. There have always been movies that nobody cares about. Um, so it's more than just that, but that has to be an aspect of it. It does, and I can think of a couple more. Uh, one aspect of, of Bruce Lee's magic and his aura and how he got the attention of the world, I think not only was it his, his skill as certainly a martial arts choreographer, if you like, rather than a combat star. He wasn't an, a sports star that way. He really had only a, a few, you know, bouts, really. But he was just mm-hmm. beautiful as an athlete, but in a filmic sense. I think one of the a key, though, was that, uh, and there are several really, uh, the, well, the pictures that became famous enough to become posters. One, of course, is the, the, uh, a scene from Enter the Dragon, uh, a major fight scene where he's bare-chested and, and really in combat pose. But there were several that I remember where he was wearing really cool mirror sunglasses. And I mm-hmm. happen to have one, a pair of those on right in front of me right now. It's cloudy in Seattle today, which is not surprising. But I've been out wearing my mirror sunglasses to look and feel cool, you know, as George Clinton would say, but also mm-hmm. to kind of magically bring the sun. But I think mm-hmm. that that one of the 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 uh, the words that comes to my mind when I think of that picture of Bruce Lee is uh, is sexy. You know, he really mm-hmm. had some sexual cool, and I can't mm-hmm. think of any uh, major Asian star. Uh, 
within the worlds of of Asian film and and the circus and and related theater uh, that had that kind of you know where people went yeah you know and there was a, a charisma working on that level you know because think of Jackie mm-hmm. Chan Jackie Chan is a beautiful athlete and he's I think a great comedic talent um, and he grew up you know with uh, a Beijing uh, circus. Uh, theater opera background. So he had a lot of real show business cred from, you know, childhood, but he's not that leading man uh, object of desire that Bruce Lee was. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I find Jet Li really cool. I I, I love the movie War, uh, which has a couple of different names. Um, I think he's great. I, I think there are a whole bunch of, of, of great, talents actually quentin tarantino knows everything about the whole genre but mm-hmm. i can't think of anyone who uh you can't really say just good looking because that's not the right way right. to put it. it it's sexual charisma i don't know any other way to say it mm-hmm. yeah i could definitely see that and i it makes me wonder if that means that these days sexual charisma is more ubiquitous or or less I'm thinking about some of the big stars that we have, action great stars. Great question. That and, is a great know, question. You know, when I think of someone like Keanu Reeves, who has been in many of the major action films of the past 20 years, Speed, The Matrix, John Wick, the list goes on and on and on. I don't, I, I, it used to be a joke that Keanu Reeves was a charisma black hole. That was right. the joke in, yeah. in, in reviews. And it's because he really is. He seems like a great guy from the stories that, you know, his publicists have allowed to be leaked to the internet. But as far as charisma goes, I mean, he's just, there's just nothing really there. He's in, <clears throat> as you said about Jackie Chan, you know, Keanu Reeves is a great athlete. You watch the John Wick movies and you can't help but be impressed with, you know, his, his physical abil- abilities. But, you know, I mean... Th- th- one of the classic funny lines of the matrix is when he is plugged in and they run the Kung Fu program and he wakes up and he says, you know, Whoa, I know Kung Fu, right? Just the guy can't deliver a line (laughs) to, to save his life. And yet he's a huge action star. And you think about like some of the other people, you know, Jason Statham, Jason Statham, I don't think has a, I mean, maybe the closest that we have these days is, Someone like The Rock, who came from professional wrestling and is able to kind of hold your attention on screen. But a lot of action stars, you know, you think about Bruce Lee or Arnold Schwarzenegger, like they had this um, this kind of appeal to them that I think you're talking about. It just isn't isn't around these days, I think. Well, I have some interesting thoughts about uh, I think it's, it's really cool you brought up The Rock because that's a really good uh counterpoint to to look into this uh but you what there was something else that was that you that triggered uh well let's look just take the rock for maybe i'll i'll uh oh no i know what it is uh it, it's completely tangential but it's it's still it still makes me laugh one of my great regrets in life and i fortunately don't have that many but i had an opportunity to go to manitoba which I think is, I mean, it's, uh, I don't know what to think of that as, a, as an obscure uh, Canadian city. But Keanu Reeves was starring on stage as Hamlet. 
And oh, great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you haven't seen any, Google on some of the, the the pictures, the still images from that, because it is really a treat. And mm-hmm. apparently the reviews were actually pretty kind and pretty supportive and good for him for trying that out. But I think the fact that he did that in a kind of, well, certainly not a, a, a famous uh, world city of culture. Um, there's something in that. But I just always, it cracks me up thinking about it. And I do mm-hmm. wish that I had had gone there. And I, I my, my, uh, my dream had been to go see that on Mescaline. You know, I thought that would be really <laughs> intense, you know. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but to pick up on the rock thing, and I, I think you might have um, – really said something important here because we could look at the rock i mean just the name the rock i mean does how mm-hmm. many people really don't know what his real full name is i mean i i just i find it hard to take seriously someone called the rock um mm-hmm. but then you think of you look at him and and arnold schwarzenegger I, I suppose is an early version of that to me those guys spell pure cartoon you know mm-hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, and I mean cartoon, not just in the superhero sense. I think of it as caricature. You know, I don't, I don't see, I don't see sexy, cool, mythological, archetypal. uh, I mean, well, here's the thing. I think a bronze statue of the rock would be just ludicrous, you know? Right. Well, maybe somebody then that's closer to that, you know, and it's it is interesting when you have someone like uh, the, when you talk about cartoonish when you look at the at the Rock's diet which I did just to see how he maintains that muscle mass it is insane we're talking I think it's fantastic you admitted that that's great oh absolutely I looked it up yeah when I started working out I was like what do these guys eat to get there and I saw that and I'm like I simply don't have the budget to be able to afford that. Um, oh, looks like Gus is up. Let me go pick him up really quickly. But somebody like Brad Pitt is closer to what you're talking about, right? Yeah, like if yeah. Brad, if Brad if Brad Pitt had martial arts chops, then you'd be talking about Bruce Lee, which is funny because Tarantino pitted, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, quote unquote, against Brad Pitt in his Once Upon a Time in in Hollywood. And it is these kind of, from a meta perspective, it's these two iconic stars of their time. Maybe Tarantino was picking up on something like that, right? That these that these guys are uniquely uh, kind of charismatic and interesting, and have that kind of sex appeal, and also you know, you know, vi- you know, propensity for for violence in the films. Uh, you know, I haven't seen that film, and I feel uh, like I should. I I kind of think because. Bruce Lee was sort of a special figure in my childhood that mm-hmm. I think that's been a factor that's kept me from watching it. But have mm-hmm. you seen, you've obviously seen the film. What, what do you think of, say a little bit more about the portrayal of Bruce Lee within that oh, it's, opposition? Yeah, it's not, it's, it's not favorable. Um, I that's why there so. was, that's yeah. why there was so much controversy when, when the movie came out, uh, specifically with Bruce Lee's daughter, who Quentin Tarantino, infamously said uh you know he had sympathy for her and everybody else could you know bum 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 right um but in the movie you know bruce is kind of portrayed as this arrogant um asshole basically who's uh full of himself and also full of shit so it (laughs) it definitely pissed people off it's it is not a uh it's not a it's not a, a a nice portrayal of the guy not 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 cartoonishly bad 
as Tarantino could definitely have done, right? It's, he's just portrayed as a young, cool guy who's got a lot of money and, you know, thinks he's the best at what he does, which at the time he was. So, yeah, that's that's my capsule review of Bruce Lee in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. Well, it's an interesting contrast. If you look at there, there's there's a range of photographs. I think that they're uh, officially UW, you know, sort of uh, student photos. And maybe the Seattle Times at the time, but a young Bruce Lee in America and clear. And he he certainly does not look like the Bruce Lee of uh, Enter the Dragon. Um, he looks sort of wet behind the ears and mm-hmm. young, mm-hmm. young and, mm-hmm. and new, new to America. Uh, so it's an immigrant sort of story and a breakthrough of, you know, a figure coming from you know, a different, you know, very different international milieu of Hong Kong. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I think part of my read of it is that, um, and one question I would have, would Bruce Lee have become Bruce Lee if he had gone straight to, say, San Francisco or L.A.? I mm-hmm. think somehow mm-hmm. not. I think somehow the Seattle element uh is part of the story. And I, I'm kind of damned if I know what I mean by that. Um, yeah, I think I know exactly what you mean by that, which is that there is a power, uh, that certain places have. Um, it's, it's something that makes complete sense to me as somebody who's really into the, you know, the, the process of psychogeography, mm-hmm. which there are some great YouTube videos that I'll link to with, uh, Will Self, the novelist. Yes. Is, I know uh, what you mean. Uh, yeah, he does psychogeography. He's written several books, actually, about the psychogeography of London. And um, there is some sort of energy, whether it has to do with the actual physical geography, what's come before in that place, uh, whether or not there is history to it. Uh, this brings us back, as a matter of fact, to, I think, all the way back to episode three, Needle Nose Pliers, where we're, we were talking about kind of the psychogeography of Oklahoma, where I live, you know, in this, uh, uh, you know, mental hospital in disrepair that, you know, has all these kind of weird people sort of moving about. But there is something, there's something to Los Angeles. There's something to New York City. And there's something to Seattle. And I think, in particular, I think Seattle, uh, you know, the gray, the rain, the architecture, the way the houses, like everything in Seattle, from what I remember of it, looks a little tired. Um, but mm-hmm. like, there's there is a kind of melancholic, doomed energy to Seattle that I think is just the perfect counterbalance to some of these bright, loud talents that we're talking about. Right? It just it adds that extra bit of color to them that uh, it imbues them with a spirit, perhaps. I think that's very well said, and I we can uh, you know fiddle with this a bit more in this episode. But I think behind the paywall, I'd like to to take that even further because I think that's a very, uh, mm. very, very spot on insight into uh, the mood, the feeling, the character of Seattle. And I think it's something that hasn't been really articulated as well as it should for for how clear it is i, I we're mm-hmm. 
that's a good start. That's a good start getting there. Here's another way of that 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 think of it. I mean, let's take this triad of Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Bruce Lee. Different different time periods. Obviously, Hendrix and uh, Lee are closer uh, historically, but isn't it a little telling that all three of those figures are are kind of class and ethnic racial figures they're they're mm-hmm, kind of representatives mm-hmm. you know they're not just yeah yeah uh, i i think that they're there's something important in that don't you think i think so i th- and i think that that links directly into something like seattle i think it might be perhaps a bit more expected that a place like new york might give rise because you know new york is proud of its immigrant populations that's what makes new york new york it's this big melting pot um la on the other hand is known for being very plastic and very white uh but i think that seattle has this this image of of just being it's kind of the the girl at the bar who is attractive but just ugly enough that you think that you can have a shot you know there's just <laughs> kind of something wrong with her right and i think that that um having people from sort of the maybe lower classes, somebody like Kurt Cobain who worked as a janitor, right? Maybe it just feels more correct that Seattle would be this maybe more level playing field where people actually could get out of it based on their talents and charisma rather than their, you know, their connections in Los Angeles or, or what have you. Well, I certainly think that, uh, okay, well, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think L.A. and New York are are so much bigger and so, you know, so synonymous with entertainment. I mean, we we virtually call, you know, Hollywood, which is just a, a region uh, in L.A. I mean, that's an industry. And and kind of New York is is in, in a different register, Broadway, uh, Wall mm-hmm. Street. You know, we, we kind of expect big things to happen there. If I can make it in New York, I can make it anywhere, you know. Uh, but I want to go back to that sort of, uh, melancholy. I think we should just, yeah, do a little bit of a, a barbecue of Seattle right now, so to speak. Um, that melancholy, the, the, the Seattle, Seattle slander. Yeah. Cause they're, you know, as beautiful as the city is and it's been beautiful, you know, really, you know since it began as a, you know, a really wild, interesting Western port. Uh, it's got a rich Native American history. It's part of, I think, you know, for some people think it's the greatest uh, Native North American cultures, certainly in terms of, of art. I think the masks, I, I'm a huge fan of the mask and the, and the textile arts. It has this just incredibly rich history, and yet it has a kind of down and dirty lost, broken. Uh, and I think of, of a couple of writers, Richard, uh, Brodigan brought that mm, out. Yeah. Right. Raymond Carver, I think captures some of that. And I always think that, um, Kurt Cobain kind of comes out of those sort of worlds. I think they all do actually. Um, Brodigan although- was a suicide, wasn't he? Pretty much, yeah. Yes, he was. He was. He was an alcoholic. I don't know if he actually did. He actually commit suicide, but he certainly drank himself to death. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. No, no, mm-hmm. he did. He did shoot himself. You're no, you're absolutely right. He shot himself in Bolinas, California, or hanged himself. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just I remember I actually read in Watermelon Sugar maybe three years ago. That was my first broad again. And there's there's this very spooky quality to a very slim volume. Yeah, I think it's 80 pages or something like that. But there's there's just again, we're talking about this um the same energy that's coming through, right? But I think, you know, these things, like the, what leads, I think, Seattle to be, you know, maybe ridiculed a little bit of recent times has been, uh, you know, what we talked about on the paywall episode last, last time, which is all these kind of progressive signage things that are going on. So what do you think is going on with that exactly how did we get from the seattle that you're talking about to this sort of tech uh dystopia i'd call it a dystopia oh absolutely well um, one of the classes that that i developed which uh, is a two-part thing so it, it's a pretty you, you can't do it in one quarter you need a whole semester but i call it blame it on the space needle sort of visions of tomorrow and I look at the the 1962 World's Fair as an artifact of the visions for tomorrow. And the entire vision is techno-utopian based. It has nothing to do with social justice, with diversity, equity, all the obsessions that Seattle is so deeply uh, obsessed with now. And I think that the, the techno-vision uh, did come true. I mean, they 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 found the city boosters found alternatives to the dependence on Boeing and the ports and the railroad, which is kind of one thing really. And they they did. They got you know Microsoft. They got Amazon. And suddenly there were guys with very neat beards and buying happily buying $12 beers and oh, the beards and the $12 beers man it's sounding like portland geographically very close geographically very close i mean i love living in portland for the first 6 months or so you know i loved the woods i loved the the small atmosphere of this you know this town that's set against these beautiful trees very very twin peaksish in its own mm-hmm. way mhm and Portland succumbed to the same thing, right? I've, I mean, there are all these great legends about Portland and Balch Creek and, you know, these uh, lumberjack type people. I remember driving one of the small highways between uh, Portland and Bend as the sun was coming up. And you see all these rolling blue hills. And you're just like, this is very beautiful, but it is also very haunted. And I'm, I'm curious about the connection between these ghosts and and what we're talking about here with I feel like it all somehow connects, right? With Bruce Lee, with the current tech dystopia. There's some kind of malevolent entity in the Pacific Northwest, is the best way that I could put it. I, I think that's very well said. I mean, it's very I, I think it's hard to to pin that creature down, but I absolutely agree with that. And it's I, I don't know when it began to really spread its tentacles and wings, but uh, I, I suspect I suspect I was here when that was happening. I, I think it was the you know the the eighties the a, a kind of peculiar 
uh, rot began to set in. And I know some, I, I, you know, people will, will be very, uh, you know, offended by that. And I, I'm sorry, I certainly don't, I mean, I know I have family here and I know a lot of you know, friends in Seattle. I've had a lot of great experiences here. But I do think there is something and has been something that is going really wrong. And there are some concrete things that we can talk about. Uh, for the homeless situation is yeah. is really uh, quite depraved. I mean, we know there yeah. are problems in many cities, L.A., San Francisco, et cetera. But there's something. Uh, well, I just passed a guy uh, asleep, you know, by the side of a pretty major road. And mm-hmm. if you had to uh, recreate his camping gear, if, if that's kind of the right word to put it. I mean, it is, but if mm-hmm. you had to do that for a film, I, I think it would be very challenging to get that look of exhaustion and yeah. Yeah. ugliness and dirtiness. And mm-hmm. it's just, you look at, I looked at him and I thought, oh my God, that is just, that's so depressing. Right, <laughs> and right. Now, I mean, here we have a city that is, you know, this hotbed of, of technological development and, and capitalist growth and, mm. uh, you know, apartment buildings that I don't know if they'll be inhabited or not. But there uh, there was one that I just looked at because I couldn't believe it. I mean, it's the size of a closet, a studio apartment for like six grand a month. You've got to be mm. kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and. But then if you're if if the view are people in tents and uh, and these are not just quiet, peaceful people that I'm I'm thinking of. These are oftentimes very angry people and maybe very legitimately so. Those are the people who I encountered in Portland as well. Just right. Just just nasty where you feel for them. But at the same time, you know, to have somebody, you know. I'm outside smoking a cigarette and to have somebody spontaneously approach you and begin bashing his head into the sidewalk and then chase after you with blood dripping down his face. I remember that story. Yeah. yeah that's a very yeah. vivid image. Yeah. Hard, hard to, uh, hard to keep your sympathies after that. Um, just re- just real quick though, because it just came to me and I don't want it to go away, but it almost seems like we have this idea of a tech utopia that has become a tech dystopia and Seattle as being the sort of ground zero for the the failed promise of of technology, right? And I link that with Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, and Bruce Lee as these, you know, these stars that died young, right? The idea of of you know promise that has been uh cut short, where, you know, where instead of having Bruce Lee, and instead of having Kurt Cobain, you know, we have Justin Bieber and, again, no offense, but, you know, Jet Li, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of uh, this kind of canceling of the utopian future that we thought that we would have in favor of a sort of simulacra of, of progress and tech. Those are, those are all very much spiritually connected, and I think it's important that, that Seattle has these you know, per capita, I think more figures like this than maybe any other American city. Well, I think that's right. And, and you know, it, it, it 
What's interesting to me in this visit, uh, which I didn't entirely anticipate, um, I mean, I'm, I'm back and forth here, you know, somewhat regularly, uh, but it is now definite, and I, I've heard this from several different quarters at street level, at bar level, from professionals and academics to, to homeless people, uh, Seattle is in the midst of a spiritual crisis. Mm. Um, there's a, a journalistic series, you know, is Seattle dying? But I mean, mm. I think it's really, I mean, no one is, is using the, the term spiritual crisis metaphorically. I mean, they're, they mean really, and they don't say, well, we're having an identity crisis. No, they're, the, the phrase is a spiritual crisis. Spiritual crisis, yeah. And I yeah. find that fascinating, that that's, that's penetrated public consciousness. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. I think um, at this point, I think we might want to cut to part two. I still have the, the Brandon Lee stuff uh, to get to, kind of the conspiracies around his death. But I think, personally, I would like to sort of continue on with this discussion, particularly about Seattle as this place of malevolent beasts and how perhaps Twin Peaks <laughs> might be in an adequate uh, metaphorical stand-in for for the the Pacific Northwest in general. But what do you think about this as kind of a as a dividing line? And we'll pick I, up I think two. that I think that's fair. I think we've got a kind of a, a strange hybrid uh, episode today, and I think that that's very fair. That the build and bleed into uh, behind the paywall um, does hinge on on Seattle. Um, and it, it will allow us too to pick up on on more of the the Bruce Lee mythology and some of the info that you've got on on the Brandon Lee thing. So I, I I'm down with that. I think that's a wise idea. Okay, cool. So it, with that note, thanks everybody for listening. If you would like to listen to part two of this, I will put a link in the show notes. It's patreon.com forward slash No Country Pod. But uh, everybody else, we'll see you on the other side.